Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our show, Modern Money Donuts, which is a show about modern monetary theory and ecological economics. I'm Gabrielle Bond, and I'm here in the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group office with uh, my with my co-host, Stephen Hale. Um, I'm an organiser for the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group, which is a campaigning group campaigning for um, better action on climate change, a Green New Deal and a job guarantee, among other, other things. And I'm also the director of Modern Money Lab, which uh, I work with Stephen at Modern Money Lab as well. Um, yes, hello, everybody. As as you may know, I'm an adjunct associate professor at Torres University here in Adelaide and an economist at Modern Money Lab. We are not usually in this office. Usually Gabby is in another office doing <laughs> a podcast wearing her Modern Money Lab hat, and I'm usually elsewhere as well. Uh, we got in a bit of a muddle today because the clocks have changed in New York and across the US, but although they do change here, they haven't changed yet. So we were expecting to do the podcast a little bit later, which is, uh, first of all, why we're both in the same spot at the moment. And secondly, why we just started a few minutes late. So thanks to our regular listeners for bearing with us. Um, I hope you didn't have to wait too long. And yes, we're here today. We're going to talk to you about something that we've been working on for about uh, at least a year or more. Well, let's let's just say a word about someone we were hoping to talk to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We were going to be talking to Con Michalakis, who is a famous uh, uh, Australian fund manager, formerly a Wall Street fund manager, uh, a little bit like Warren Mosler. I mean, Con didn't invent modern monetary theory, but a little bit like Warren Mosler, Con has found modern monetary theory very useful Mm. in his work, Mm. and he's very prominent uh, in Australia. And we were looking forward to talking to him, actually, he would know all about what the time is in New York because I think he's in New York at the moment, but he mm-hmm. has a terrible abscess today, so we couldn't put him in front of the camera because yeah. he's feeling rather under the weather. So we're going to talk about something else instead. Now, as though, as you might know, we are putting together uh, a set of postgraduate qualifications in modern monetary theory and ecological economics. Very exciting. But that's not the only thing that we've been working on in the last couple of years. We also do some virtually free, face-to-face, interactive, short weekend courses, um, which we called Rethinking Capitalism, that we offered several times in Adelaide last year because Adelaide, until the end of last year, was virtually COVID-free. So we were able to have events here, Mm. um, but we couldn't go anywhere else. Um, Since then, we've done the course in one of the two big cities in Australia, Melbourne, and very exciting for us. We're going, uh, not next weekend, but the week after, we're going to do the course in uh, Hobart, which is the capital of a beautiful island off Australia that you might have heard of called Tasmania. Um, I can't wait to go there. We'll, We'll go to Sydney at some point, I hope, as well. Mm. And maybe we'll do something along these lines online at some point too. It will need rethinking to do it online because at the moment it's designed as a face-to-face course, really. Um, uh, And also I'll need to rewrite bits and pieces of it because it's very Australian-focused at the moment. But uh, what we can do today is just give you a taste 
of the kind of things that we look at in this course with the activists it is mainly political activists that uh, that come along and and participate in it gabby what do you think is the most valuable part of the course or why do people come i think people come because they what they will get out of it is um, a confidence to be able to talk about economics and to really understand how things work and to be not bamboozled by, um, you know, the deficit myth and telling people that, that we can't afford action on climate change and a Green New Deal and just kind of accepting that and not having a, uh, a way forward. Um, so I think that has been one of the biggest positive outcomes that we have um, dozens, if not hundreds coming up to hundreds of people who now understand economics in a completely different way than they did before they did this course with us. It's been great fun. Uh, it involves uh, me or some, sometimes with the help of uh, Lisa in Adelaide with a friend of mine called David Joy talking on a variety of topics we'll say something about in a minute mm. for about half an hour and then we have short small discussion groups where people have a look at just an extract from an article or something on the same topic and discuss that topic together. And it's as much as anything else, it's a call to action. So mm. it's not just about um, discussing uh, ecological limits or the deficit myth or inequality or state capture and corruption or trade and development and issues like that. Mm. But it's about people engaging in discussions with each other and coming up with the sort of ideas if we ever had a really progressive government in Australia or in the US that would actually help us to deal with some of these problems um, over, God, I hope the next five or 10 years, because mm. we don't have an indefinite amount of time yep. available to us and to build a better future so it's not all negative it's a positive thing if we were serious about building an equitable and sustainable future how would we go about doing it mm -hmm. and the reason why i devised the course in the first place was that uh, i went to along with gabby who does this much more than me i went to a couple of uh, young persons uh, climate not a young person uh, mm -hmm. climate marches a couple of years ago where there were some really inspirational young people giving speeches and being distressed and angry quite rightly yeah. about what we have done and are doing to the planet which we are passing on the custodianship of which uh, to them but I stood there in the crowd and I couldn't hear any solutions I could just hear the pain so what I wanted to do was to as we as we're already doing with MMT, is to interact with people to find out their ideas, but also um, there's some stuff that we know about that's useful. So to share with people some of the stuff that we know about too and get them chatting with each other and try to influence branches of the Australian Greens and the Australian Labour Party and others mm, as well, yeah. people outside party politics too. And it's been quite popular so far. We've had uh, over 200 people um, uh, come and do the weekend with us. And uh, that's the very first slide you can see there. You can see the owl from Modern Monetary mm -hmm. Theory. Um, we do this under the label of uh, Modern Money Lab these days. Now, I'm not at the University of Adelaide. 
anymore. Uh, we, uh, uh, this is the first slide that we'll be, uh, we'll be starting with um in Hobart and let, let's maybe sh shall I look through some of the slides quickly yeah absolutely I'll just uh, give a quick um uh overview of how it works just in case you're wondering so it it has 10 topics and each topic um is about 25 to 30 minutes of introduction and uh content which is mainly presented by Stephen and created by Stephen I'm very sneaky I only did four the first day so it's not to put people off <laughs> Um, and then people break into groups and we try to keep the groups uh, very mixed. So there's a, uh, you're not always in the same group with the same people. It's always a random draw who goes where. So you're encountering different people's life experience and different views. Um, and then uh, we, we also have a set of readings which people can use as a jumping off point for their discussions or they can use uh, whatever they heard in the previous um, session and then they have at least the same amount of time discussing as they do listening and absorbing. And then uh, we try to feed people very well. Um, which that's, that, that's the only thing really we charge people for. <laughs> because <laughs> actually um, having, having um, good and healthy food and having plenty of time in the breaks makes for a really lovely event and people come out of it feeling um, refreshed and inspired and I think that's a really big part of it too. We have yeah. people who, uh, obviously people come who can't afford to pay anything because there are other people that come who are generous enough to mm. make donations to, with more or less broken even, more yeah. or less. Yeah. So far, we have to subsidise it a little bit ourselves. It's definitely not something we do to earn money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I guess one thing I just wanted to also say before we launch into what we're covering is um, I know uh, uh, in the MMT um, activism circles, it, there's a, a little saying which I love, which is each one teach one. And I think we are, we're making a, a big down payment on that. Because, well, that, we're trying yeah. to encourage other people to <laughs> yeah. each one teach one. Yeah, that's one. right. So but we, I'm, we I'm, teach hundreds and then each one of those, hopefully, we'll be able to teach. Everybody has to do what they're able to do. Mm -hmm. And we're in a privileged position where... Uh, because the university's given me a title, people tend to listen to, they're giving more of a platform. So we really need to try and teach thousands. And other people, um, uh, whoever we can reach is great. We've had people that are, are not economists who've gone out and started doing talks on modern monetary theory, we might come back to that uh, in another week. And that's how we spread this. It has to be, just as Extinction Rebellion say, when we're talking about climate change, it has to be from the bottom up. Mm. We can't mm. wait for anyone. However, even if they're Bernie Sanders, who I love, or uh, any other politician from the top, they're not going to do this for us. Um, eventually, the politicians will have to do these things for us, but they'll do them for us because we force them, mm. because we just won't support them uh, otherwise. Anyway, I hope that it's empowering. Um, maybe we can have a look at the next slide. So this is a little whistle-stop tour of some of the topics that we cover. It'll have to be very whistle-stop. Yeah. Can we get the next slide? Because I don't think we can operate it. Maybe oh, we yes, can. we can. Oh, we there can we operate go. it. Yeah, well, this is where we start from. Um, uh, explaining to people what we're going to be covering over the two days, talking about what our objective is actually in the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group and... Uh, and Modern Money Lab and 
Fidel's Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, uh, moving away from growthism and thinking about a thriving economy. What does it mean for an economy and for our natural environment to thrive? And we need to discuss all these issues on the way from fair trade and reparations and other issues like that at the bottom to ecological constraints at the top, modern monetary theory, income inequality, state capture. So we start off in our first hour talking about various stories about what capitalism is, where it came from, and how we got to the absurd situation where in the 2000s, a 20-something-year-old working for a financial institution on Wall Street can be earning 20 or 30 times as much as a nurse who is providing vital care in an intensive care unit to people facing COVID or anything else that's mm. threatening their mm. lives. Yep. Um, even a generation ago, uh, there would have been a gap in earnings between these people, but it would have been far, far smaller. And that involves going back and thinking about our narrative on value and what people are worth mm. and how much we reward them and how that's a signal of what society values. And um, that involves going back and talking about how economics itself has evolved alongside capitalism since the 19th century and going back to some of the things that Adam Smith in the 18th century discussed, which we haven't talked about very much in recent uh, decades, which is how do we distinguish between what's productive labor and what's unproductive, what adds to social well-being, and what either doesn't add to it at all or actually uh, detracts yeah. from yeah. it. And this has to be at the center of our vision for what we want our economies and the world to be like in a generation or more's time. And the other thing we think about is how are we going to do this in a patient, sympathetic way where we can get enough people to buy in mm. to this view of the world so that we're not just angry middle-aged white men, which a lot of us are, shouting our frustrations into, high, into uh, cyberspace Mm. Uh, and not convincing anybody and actually putting people off. We need enough people. In the end, we need a majority of people to buy in to a sustainable and equitable future, or it won't happen. I've already talked about the donut, haven't I, Gabby? Yes. Um, yes, we definitely have covered uh, the donut on this podcast. It's always good to have a reminder because, um, you know, we we live in on a pale blue dot in the middle of space and it's our only home and we are trashing it at the moment and we need to turn that around quickly. And the, whereas the deficit myth and MMT is largely, not exclusively, but largely about how do we pay for and how do we resource a transition to a just and safe future, what a just and safe future means must incorporate um, uh, insights from ecological economics and Kate Rabbit's donut model is perhaps the best visual representation mm. of this. We mm. need to meet everybody's requirements for a decent life. That's what social foundations are. Water, food, uh, income, 
and work, education, healthcare, and all the other things are listed there, loosely yeah. based on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. But we need to do this while living within our ecological ceiling. Yes. And actually, there are nine planetary boundaries which have been identified by Earth system scientists. And this chart is perhaps even a little bit out of date because it's likely that we're beyond eight of these nine at the moment. So we need to address these issues. Everybody knows in mm. the next generation. It's not just about climate change. It's about biodiversity loss. It's about those additional chemicals which we're adding to the soil yes. and poisoning our rivers. And, which we talked to Sherry about last, last Absolutely. week. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is evidence, and we talk about this in the course, that um, we we could, if we just shifted our goal from growth for the sake of growth to a thriving economy, we could be locating in that green ring mm. of the donut. But at the moment, there are literally no countries that are doing this. About a third of countries are meeting social foundations largely, or at least have the income to do so, but are beyond their ecological ceiling. That is the case in the US and Australia, for yes. example. Yeah. About a third of countries uh, are not beyond their ecological ceiling, but they're not meeting their social foundations. That's true of the world's lowest income countries that do need their economies to grow. Mm. Uh, there are sadly about a third of countries, including China and, and many others I could mention, South Africa, Brazil, that are neither meeting their minimum social foundations nor living within their ecological ceiling. They're moving are, in the wrong direction. There are, in other words, at the moment, no countries, Costa Rica is the closest to doing it, but there are no countries that are living in that green ring, which is where we need to aim to be at some point later on this century, the sooner the better. We can do it. In our course, we discuss some of the ways in which we could bring this about. Of course, a problem is not paying for it. And that's where we have to address. And many of you, uh, if, if you're watching us now, uh, will be uh, aware of this already. I just took this slide from J.D. Ilt's uh, uh, um, uh, book of cartoons on MMT. It's a great book. Mm. Most people think the world is what you can see on the left-hand side there, where the federal government, FG, has to get dollars in using taxes or borrowing from the private sector or borrowing those dollars from China, because, of course, all dollars are made in China, as we know. And the government then wastes these dollars on entitlements or discretionary spending or has to repay its debts, otherwise it would go broke and has to pay interest on its debt, which makes the debt unsustainable. That's the conventional view. Yes. You need to tax or borrow before you can, you can spend, spend. if you're right. the federal government. Of course, this is not true in the US or in Australia or in any country where the federal government is a currency issuer with a high degree of monetary sovereignty. Our federal governments do not need to get dollars before they spend. Indeed, as we've said before, they have to spend before the dollars exist that we can use to pay taxes or that we can use to buy treasury bonds mm. as a safe way of saving the dollars that we have received, um, which people often refer to as government borrowing, but it isn't borrowing in the conventional sense at all. This federal spending, of course, allows the government to create those collective goods and services, our social and economic infrastructure that supports profitable businesses and supports people in employment 
and we know what the role of taxes is at the at the macroeconomic level at the federal level it's to take some dollars out of the system delete dollars so that federal government spending doesn't push us to the point of where inflation. that's yeah. right absolutely that's the correct way to think about spending and of course it explains how come governments in the US and Australia and high income countries in general down the years have almost all the time run deficits it's because when they run deficits those deficits are just a net contribution of dollars to the private sector they allow everybody else to save to run surpluses for us to run a surplus the government has to run a deficit yes. government deficits are nothing to be scared of the so-called national debt the government's debt is in fact of course everybody else's net savings right. in dollars that's all it is yes. it's just the dollars the government spent into existence are not yet deleted again we so, have to spend a while on that <laughs> because the activists mm. that uh, come to it's our quite courses, mind blowing for for a lot of people yeah as it was for many of us yeah, in the first place that's right. they come thinking the world is a tabs world and it's not it's a stab world the currency issuer spends and later taxes and, or borrows yeah. some of those dollars back so grab that picture if you um if you can find it on the internet save it to your computer use it when you're trying to explain things to people especially people love to see it visually i think this is a really good little diagram or or get jdl's book which yeah. which is just a, a, a few dollars and uh, is available widely on the net okay we then talk about inequality we talk about the causes of growing inequality and what we need to do in order to significantly reduce inequality of income and wealth in the years to come there is a measure of inequality on the slide i'm not going to explain what that measure is but basically the line going up tells you inequality has been increasing over time what you can see from this slide is that compared to other high income countries in the world almost all other high income countries in the world the usa is an extremely unequal country so we've got a chart here for the us and the uk and australia you can see that on all three of these countries inequality has increased since the 1970s considerably mm. it's kind of interesting that in the us in the uk's case the increase took place entirely under one prime minister which was margaret thatcher in the 1980s in australia there's been the same sort of increase in inequality as the uk That's but slower. over a longer period mm. since the 1970s and in both the uk and australia there is more inequality now than there was in america in the 1970s but of course inequality in the us has increased hugely since then so that and i don't think all americans know this america has what you might call a third world level of inequality a level of inequality normally associated with dictatorships in third world countries that's what happens when state capture by the elite by the mm. corporate elite goes to an extreme yeah was it essential for there to be a massive increase in inequality in these high income countries down the years well that's why i've included one of the scandinavian countries on here norway you can see that in norway in the 2000s inequality is much the same as it was in the 1960s and 70s so this was not the case that's kind of interesting it's also interesting that norway amongst these four countries across a wide variety of indicators of social well-being does much better 
than the other three countries. Mm. And in many cases, the US, which is the country with the biggest economy, does worst of the four. So inequality really matters. And in rich countries, it's inequality that matters much more than GDP, mm. where well-being is concerned. So we spend time on our course thinking about ways in which we could reduce inequality. Again, at least push it back to 1970s time levels mm. so that even if it's the case that we can't keep growing our economies forever, and I don't think we can do that, we can improve the well-being of the mass of people that are struggling significantly. And we do that more by focusing on inequality than focusing on growth yes, for the sake of absolutely. growth. absolutely. And just uh, one very brief comment on the previous slide. If you're listening in Australia, you'll see that that line has gone up no matter who is in power, left or right. It's always increasing. Yeah, in, in the UK, Margaret Thatcher said that Tony Blair, who was a Labour Prime Minister, was her greatest achievement. In Australia, she could have said, and late, if there are any ALP listeners in Australia, they won't like me saying this, a man that I have met and is a very bright man, but nonetheless, I'm going to say it, Paul Keating was her greatest achievement because mm. inequality in Australia has risen under both conservative, we call yeah. them liberals here, the conservatives, and Just to confuse Labour everyone. governments. Part of uh, a mechanism for eliminating involuntary poverty and reducing inequality while at the same time allowing us to transition to a fairer and safer future is a green job guarantee. And we, I'm not going to spend ages talking about this now. You've had people talk to you about a federal job guarantee elsewhere, I'm sure. If you haven't read Pavlina's book, then it's a really great summary of mm. everything you need to know about the case for a job guarantee. And of course, it's particularly focused on the US, although we use it over here um, as well. Um, it's one of the things that Gabby and I are campaigning for. Um, but uh, because we're running out of time, let's quickly go on. Something else that we're talking a lot about is state capture, which is very advanced in Australia, even worse in the US. Uh, there is a, an interesting book written by Sarah Chase in the US called Thieves of State, you might get hold of. Our Australian equivalent is a book by Cameron Murray and Paul Freitas called Game of Mates. Yeah. And it's about how, particularly during the era of neoliberalism, since about 1980, our political process has become increasingly dominated by elite networks of political donors and other influences that dominate our media and other institutions mm. and fund right-wing think tanks. Uh, it's a really interesting issue. First of all, what are the implications for a wide variety of issues, uh, fossil fuels, housing, banking and finance, I could go on. We talk about a lot of things in, in, in our course. And secondly, <coughs> what could we do about it? Yeah. A, a friend of Gabby's, uh, a former federal senator in Australia, Scott Ludlam, is a great campaigner on this issue. And we look at some of his work when we're talking about state capture. And then finally, uh, well, we have a sort of concluding hour. But before the concluding hour, the final thing we do is we talk about free trade agreements, we talk about their impact and the impact of unequal, unfair trade generally on not only 
workers in rich countries like Australia and the US, but also on low income countries. And we talk about how everything became a lot less fair from the early 1980s onwards and why this was the case. Mm. So why we've ended up with a global system where low income country governments feel forced or at least in some cases acquiesce and are bribed into going along with a system where they privilege access of global multinationals to their economies, where those global multinationals are not expected to um, follow decent environmental standards, decent employment standards, not expected to employ employ local people mm. at senior mm. levels, mm. Uh, not expected to add significant value domestically, but instead, uh, if we're talking about extractive industries or agriculture that, or tourism for that matter, they remain low value added where mining is concerned, basically they are able to dig up the metals or minerals that the rich world needs. They're able to take them out of the country, paying a low price for them, contributing nothing really mm. in terms of technology or training and expertise in the local economy. Uh, local governments go, go, governments go into debt, foreign currency debt, in order to build infrastructure for these companies. They exempt the companies from taxation. They allow the companies to use all sorts of mechanisms of taking money out of the economy. And a focus on things like cash crops, instead of improving these countries' trade balance, makes it deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And uh, pressure for them, because they're dependent on imported necessities priced in US dollars to maintain their exchange rates, drives the countries into increasingly unsustainable foreign currency or US dollar debt, yeah. which then is a burden yeah. for future generations in those countries. And this is the kind of thing that in his brilliant book, The Divide, Jason Hickel, the famous uh, anthropologist, mm. has written about. And so we talk about that. We also talk about the impact of trade agreements, which since the 1980s have not really been about free trade. They've not been about reducing tariffs and quotas. They've been about biasing everything in favour of corporate monopolies around the world. They have been one of the factors hollowing out the middle class mm. and increasing inequality in countries like the US and Australia. And we talk about what we ought to think about doing about that as well, I won't talk about these last two slides because we've kind of run out of time. But neoclassical economics has really been, since it was really developed in the, from the 1870s onwards, it's been a way of justifying um, the uh, state of capitalism as it exists at the moment and evolutions in capitalism over time, including the neoliberal period of the last 40 years. And we need to challenge this at all levels, educational institutions, political institutions, the social narrative. And that means we have to educate ourselves and we have to educate other people. But we have to do that in a sympathetic and patient way. You can't call people idiots and expect them to agree with you. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't work. Um, and we also talk, as I said, I'm not going to read through this slide now, but Jason Hickel, don't just read his book, The Divide. If you have the opportunity, 
read his other book, Less Is More. Yes, too. great book. Uh, and in Less Is More, this is not a quote from Less Is More, this is something that Jason Hickel wrote on a Twitter thread at the beginning of last year. You'll see uh, Jason's uh, uh, brilliant, I think, discussion of where capitalism came from, how capitalism, at least in the forms it's existed up until now, is unsustainable and unjust, and how, well, we talk about rethinking capitalism, Jason talks about replacing capitalism. Whether you use one of those terms or the other really doesn't matter. But we do need changes in the next generation. There will be changes. They'll be forced upon us yes. by a collapsing natural environment or they'll be planned. And it's up to us all to push in the next few years, certainly in the next couple of decades, for those changes to be planned so that we can build a better, safer, more sustainable future where the great mass of people have a better quality of life than now rather than the other way around. And that's about it, Gabby. Yes, that's about it. It's a, it's a lot to cover in, um, in half an hour and it's a, a lot to cover even in a whole weekend. Um, yes, as Stephen said before, one day we hope to be able to re rework this to perhaps offer it online. Uh, if that's something you're interested in, um, feel free to drop us a line. Uh, we are on Twitter. We are on uh, Facebook. We, um, yeah, we'd be happy to uh, get back to you about those messages. Uh, you can also email info at modernmoneylab.org.au if you'd like to contact us by email. Or if, you, come straight if to you have the resources and time and you have the motivation, uh, you might even go on our Modern Money Lab site and think about doing a postgraduate qualification and turning yourself maybe into a doctor or if not a doctor, someone with a graduate certificate or a graduate diploma because um, there is so much to learn and it's so empowering and there are not enough of us mm -hmm. and there are far too many of them and that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing, trying to help create more of us so that at some point, even if, if it's after... Gabby and I are not on the planet anymore. Um, the changes that could be made that would make this planet a much better place for most people to live on that we can make. Now, um, it's only seven minutes until Joe's show comes up, but I just wanted to mention before we finish that we have, I hope anyway, I hope he's, he's uh, <laughs> fingers crossed he's going to be well and available. We have a very exciting guest to talk to next week. We have uh, one of my... Uh, I won't say heroes, but one of the people I look up to, you know, I look up to Stephanie Kelton and Warren Mosler and Randy Ray and, and Fadel Kaboob yes. and Pavlina Cheneva and Scott Fulweiler and Matt Forstatter and, of course, Bill Mitchell, the Australian economist. But I also look up to another Australian economist, Professor Steve King. He's standing for Senate in our federal election in Australia this year, and we want to ask him why. So we're going to do that. Next week, I'm sorry, to, today was a little bit late starting, but thanks we'll, be, we'll be on time next yes. week. Yep. Thanks very much. Uh, if you've watched this, thanks very much for watching it. Um, and thank you, people who are watching online later on as well. Um, please get in touch with us via the Modern Money Lab site. It's easy to find if you've got any questions or if you'd like to make any comments or um, don't be mean to us. but. <laughs> But uh, other than that, uh, have a great week and thank you very much for watching. See you next time. Bye.